My name's Dominic Stevenson and welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. And today, we're talking to Dom Stevenson. Okie dokie. So I'm... <clears throat> Uh, I'm a writer. My name's Dominic Stevenson, and I've written a book called Get Your Head in the Game. And it's about the intersection between football and mental health. Um, I've worked in charities and healthcare organisations with vulnerable people for the last sort of 10, 12 years. And it's a topic that's kept on coming up through my career and through my personal life. Um, And yeah, so that's what sort of led me here. As is usual, I am joined by one hell of a front two. It's Ant and Ryan. It's the chaps. How are we, fellas? Ant, how are we? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be in the front two, normally on the bench. But yeah, I'm good. What Doing him, all right. What 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 sort of role would you be playing in this front two? Ooh, uh... Can I butt in? Only because, funnily enough, when we played footy the other week, me and Pop stood up front for a little minute because we were getting drilled. And I, I described us as Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips. Who's who? Yeah. Uh, I think we know that Pod's big, big Niall Quinn, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with Niall. <laughs> I'll take Niall Quinn, like. <laughs> Niall Quinn was quality. He was yeah, quality, no, to be fair. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I'll take Niall Quinn. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be the... boot winner, Kevin Phillips. Yeah, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll, I'll be the target man up front then. Great, yeah. that I haven't seen you win a header the whole time I've known you, but yeah. So. No, but I've I've fallen over and won a lot of free kicks. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Very true. I've annoyed I've annoyed the opposition crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is always a crowd when we play on a Monday night, an effervescent yeah. crowd. <laughs> um, so we're obviously here today to uh, talk about Dom Stevenson and uh, Dom's new book, which is called Get Your Head in the Game, which will be out close to Christmas and. I have to say, would make a, an excellent Christmas present for for anybody who's interested in football, interested in mental health, and and likes a good read. Um, but what I want to know from you two is, what is your favourite football-related Christmas present? And Ryan, I'm going to come to you first. Growing up, I always got a football top at Christmas, which I no longer get because uh, I don't wear them. And I did have a half-season ticket purchased for me a couple of times as well. Uh, so not the greatest answers, quite stereotypical ones. Just using the word football, I did once get some NFL American football tickets for Christmas as well for Wembley, which we went down to see. Um, so on a technicality, that was that was kind of good. But yeah, I can't think of too many Christmas presents I've had football related other than season tickets and sh- shirts. What um what NFL match was it? Who was playing? It was San Francisco 49ers, which is the team I like, versus the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> and it was, a, it, was, it was a good game, yeah. A bit of a washout, to be fair. But um, the Jags always play in London, and they've got the same owner as Fulham, Tony Khan. 
So I think they had like a 10-year deal. So there's quite a lot of uh, Jags fans now floating around in the UK. But uh, yeah, it was just a good experience of like T-shirts fired into the crowd. <laughs> All the things you don't get at Cramium and cheerleaders and stuff like that. Giant hot dogs. Um, we do occasionally get giant hot dogs. Not yeah, that big giant roll over one. Them yeah. big rollover ones you get at away games and it's like the crustiest, hardest bread ever. Your mouth <laughs> it is, is isn't bleeding it? at the end of it. It's like there's no need for the bread that you have You don't need red sauce because you just have your literal blood on the top of <laughs> the hot dog. Paid a fiver for it, a barrel away or something. And you're like, what is this? Um, and what's your favourite football-related <laughs> Christmas present? And I'm going to guess it's probably not a rollover hot dog. Oh, absolutely not, no. I do remember getting a... Um, You're uh, more of a burger van, aren't you? Burger man. Yeah, oh, definitely. I do remember getting a trammy top. And then I think on the same day that I got it, which is obviously Christmas Day, I spilt chocolate on it, but which is really unfortunate because it's a white top. So that went in the wash straight away. Um, that was when I was about 10. Uh, no, but I think one of the, one of my, my favourite ones, football related, I always end up getting them like little books of like, I got one last year, which is like uh, football legends. So it'll be like loads of stories about like Tom Finney and George Best and all that. But I think my favourite one has been uh, getting my first football manager game oh, because yeah. it just gave me like hours and hours and hours of like fun and like torture with like offside goals and last minute defeats and last minute victories. And when you finally actually win something and get promoted, it's not unlike it. You're jumping around in your bedroom and then you're trying to explain it to someone and they're like, that sounds ridiculous. And you're like, but it's not ridiculous. It means something. And you're like, doesn't come on, but it was amazing. I think it was football manager 2006. I think I got, um, and it was absolutely class. Although Chammy weren't very good on it. And they weren't very good on it for a long, long time, to be honest. Uh, I think you had to sell pretty much after squad to get any money. So he used to go, right. uh, yeah, he used to go used to go over other teams. Like 2009, they were, they were pretty good because we had like Steve Davis and 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 people like, oh, 2008, 2009, we had like Steve Davis and Ian Moore than that. And they it was a decent team then. I remember him. I remember having a real fetish on football manager for going Reading when they had Jimmy Kebe. I don't oh, know why. Wow. I just used to love going Reading with Jimmy Kebe. Jimmy well, Kebe had, uh, yeah. and uh, Alex Pierce at the back. Um oh. for Adam Federici in goal. Uh, yeah, yeah, Doyle. It was it was lovely. Kebe was the man though. You literally yeah. used to just set your team up so that they were narrow and compact and just put Kebe really, really wide on the right hand side and just set it for through balls to Kebe because he was rapido and you just get in all the time. Uh, my favorite football related Christmas present is a uh, canvas I got from my mother of Wayne Rooney doing the bicycle kick against uh, Manchester City, which still hangs proudly in my childhood bedroom. Um, I, I put a request in to the new house committee, um, but the head of the committee, uh, Soph, said, no, that's not coming to the new house. Um, so it is sadly had to stay at the, uh, the childhood home. But uh, we are currently uh, in talks with the lawyers to, to put in an appeal. And, you know, hopefully that will be successful. Um, so moving on <laughs> to, uh, to Dom's interview. Uh, first of all, and... For people who don't know who Dom is and people don't know why we wanted to speak to him, do you want to tell the listeners what it was that, that got us to slide into those DMs of Dom Stevenson? Uh, what it was, was 
I was, I've said was about 17 times there. I was uh, searching Twitter probably on a, a rainy afternoon where I probably should have been doing some work and saw that he was releasing a book. Um, and it was, I think it, a book has never fitted anything like what we do previously. As well, and yeah. This, yeah, and this just fitted so well. And I remember looking at it and going, I wonder what he's like. When I was Twitter, Sheffield Wednesday fan, I was like, oh, okay. I had a little bit of a look through. I had a look at the, the title of the book, what it was going to be about. And I was like, lads, this this looks pretty good. This It's coming out around Christmas time. I think we need to, to see what this is like and see what it's about. And, you know, I think he'd, he'd mentioned that uh, there was something to do with his book tour. It had been, been kind of like put off because of the, the coronavirus restrictions mm. and stuff. Um, so... I just thought it'd be a good idea, to be honest, and yeah. and yeah. I think I read the first twenty pages of it, of it, and you know, you, you can just—I've mentioned it in the interview—you can just tell the the passion that he writes with, and it just it just shines through. And I think when you get a book like that, you go, oh, "This this is what it means to be a, a, a football fan, a lower league football fan, an international football. It just means everything to to people." And it, it was it was superb, and it was a superb interview with a really really nice fella. Yeah. 100%. And and Ryan, do you want to tell the listeners what this week's theme is? Yeah, we've gone with the name of his book, so Get Your Head in the Game is this week's theme. I uh, don't think we could have really picked anything else other than, other than that, so yeah, it seemed to fit perfectly. Fantastic. So yeah, as the lads have said, Tom Stevenson's book, uh, Get Your Head in the Game, we'll have some more details about that after the interview. Dom's going to talk us through kind of the background and the process of, of how he wrote it. It's a to book all about football and mental health. Um, someone should do a podcast about that. Uh, so you're listening <laughs> to Man Marking, and we'll see you on the other side. First protocol, the new book. It's called Get Your Head in the Game. Uh, just give us a brief overview of, of what it's about. So it's it's a exploration of mental health within football, and I've spoken to players, managers, coaches, people within the game, fans, physios, doctors, people like that, just to get a really rounded perspective on a the experiences of those people, but also how mental health is dealt with in the game over the last sort of three decades and at present. You know, you, you chart your own journey throughout it as well as, as other stories. So, does your interest in mental health come from a from a lived experience? Yeah, I've had uh, periods of uh, poor mental health at, at various points over the last sort of 10, 15 years, and it's sort of it, it's it's strange because I was talk, talking a few weeks ago to my mum about it, and I I couldn't quite remember all that had gone on and it, it sort of feels like it's something that I've blocked out my own mind a bit the sort of periods of um, ill health but it, it's something that I'm always aware of I always try to watch I always try to keep an eye out for because I'm just extremely aware that it could come back at any point and it affects me it affects those around me at times, it's made me very withdrawn from people, and and and, and particularly 
during lockdown and during COVID and the whole of 2020, really, it's been a time where I've had to keep an eye out on myself and just keep on checking in to see if I'm feeling all right. And there's been times when I really haven't been. There's a, a part in, in the book where I talk about going to meet Sam Hutchinson, who played for Sheffield Wednesday and is now playing in Cyprus. And I talk about how he says that when he's having periods of mental ill health, he shaves his head. And interestingly, when I'm having periods of mental ill health, I tend to let my head hair and my beard grow quite a bit. And that's always an indicator to me that I'll sort of have a day where I'm feeling a bit better and look in the mirror and think I look a bit like a wolf. <laughs> and then it'll sort of make me think I've got to do, like I've got to check in with myself. I've got to do something about this. Yeah, we spoke to um, to Carl Anker, and he said uh, he said a similar thing about shaving his head when he when he wasn't quite feeling him, himself. Mm. And I wonder whether there is kind of a connection. I assume there would be, you know, it's looking after yourself as you know on the outside as much as inside, isn't it? So I wonder whether there is that connection there. Um, just when writing the book, and when I'd read the little bits that I read. I think that lived experience comes through because you can tell, you know, from the first 20 pages or so that the passion for the topic comes through, it shines through really easily. And I think that as a, as a, as a reader, it, it comes across so, so nice because obviously it's a topic that they'd be interested in, you know, most men and most lads will be interested in because it's football, but you can just get that passion about, about, you know, we need to start talking about these issues and and how these issues have an effect on on players within the game and and fans of it as well. Um, just you're in writing that book. Uh, obviously, you touched on there speaking to Sam Hutchinson. Did you did you learn anything else at all whilst writing the book? Anything that kind of surprised you, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think just the for the strength of understanding within the game shocked me but also the grim reality of football in the at the top level people have money but even you start to think about a thing like Sheffield Wednesday who are big in the sense that they have a history but financially not doing amazing and they've got I, I don't know 30 first-team squads and then players on the cusp of the first team and then youth teams. And how do they afford to provide appropriate mental health provision for all of those players? And arguably, they could lower the salaries of all of those players. But it, it just it, it shocked me the actual depth of understanding between players and managers and clubs and doctors about mental health and the fact that they are aware of it. And and something else that struck me is that often players take fans a lot more seriously than, than I thought they did. Because when you're one of 25,000 people shouting or cheering, you sort of feel oddly voiceless because how how does that player hear what you have to say but 
they do, they hear, they understand. And, and, and that really surprised me just how much they care and how much they listen and how much they actually want to do a job on the pitch for fans. I was just gonna gonna ask you as well. Do you, you know, obviously, you said there was a you were surprised by the depth of understanding of mental health. Do you think it's becoming a, a more open uh, industry and in, in, in learning about about mental health and ill mental health as well? Yeah, I, I, like what one hundred percent that I think that football clubs, managers, players, they're they're all learning, and I think that. If, if you sort of look at the people who are managers from someone like Ian Holloway at Grimsby or someone like Sam Allardyce, and they're all people who were forerunners in sports science, in caring for people. And although they may not have put a name on it, if you look at all the best managers, they say, like the people who talk about them always say they're a great man manager. Like, people like Neil Warnock and um, they talk about them with such praise and such joy. And they're the people who, even though I don't know if they were aware of it, were the forerunners in making football care about mental health. And I think just the, the world is changing in itself, but there's, such a divide between footballers and the world now, even 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 at the sort of lower levels, that that they do take the time. I think a lot more to consider their mental health, and I think because they're more isolated. Because if you, I, I don't know, if you play for Man U, you can't go around the Trafford Centre just doing your shopping because no one will leave you alone. So you spend time and you self-reflect. And I'm sure as you go down the leagues, that's still something that happens, that if you have a bad game on a Saturday, Sunday isn't spent going around Morrison's. It's spent reflecting because you know that you'll get a bad reaction from people. And I think more and more people are thinking about it. But the thing that a lot of people came back to was the the cost of the support and it's just not there and that the patience within football is, is has changed so much that everything is so re- results driven that you can't leave a player behind. And I think also the wider perception that if you have a player who says, I've broken my leg, I can't play, fans will go, that's a shame. Like we wish he could play, but no one will shout it, no one will criticize, and no one will go on social media and try and attack him. But if you have a player who says, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm suffering a period of mental ill health, and I can't say when I'll be back, then people unleash such assaults on them. And it, yeah, like that is where I think football and fans are tearing a gap between themselves more than... Because when I went into this book, I thought money would be the thing. I thought that money would be the great divider. But it's not. It's that ability of 
fans not to see that football is a job. And although it's a job that so many of us would love to do, it's it's a it's a job. And I work for a healthcare organization now. If I have a bad day at work, no one's going to come and shout at me. No one's going to follow me down the street. No one's going to threaten to come and throw bricks through my window. And, yeah, I think that's a huge difference. I think football itself is learning. But I think some fans are left have been left behind through poor education, through the divisive world in which we live. And and that's a real shame, and it's causing such a wedge. You know, we had David Cox on, on our, our podcast, and, yeah. uh, you know, obviously he came out and, and said and spoke about the, the battles he'd had over the last few years. And, and sadly for him, it was, you know, fans at matches saying despicable things. And yeah. I think you are completely right. I think there's a lot a lot for fans to learn as well, as, as much as football clubs can be seen as, as the big monsters in this um, and, and the big monsters in, in general. You know, you've only got to look at the last week of, you know, Project Big Picture and, and, and the way fans are going to have new clubs and and the, and the Premier League streaming. So there is that argument to it. But I think we've, as fans and, and as a society as well, we, we have to learn a, a lot a lot more and, and, and learn better as well, become smarter yeah. about what, what we're learning about. Yeah, so so much more, and so, and it's just the whole societal discourse now is people calling each other snowflakes and and things like that. And I mean, like as as an example, I um, a few, few uh, uh, in sort of June, July this year, um, I was talking to members of an anti-racism organisation called Owls Against Racists. And I said that I'd reported um, an incident of racism amongst Sheffield Wednesday fans to the club. And I got such dog's abuse for for, for doing that. And I, I did it. And then, in, interestingly, I then wrote an article about Atiyad Nahui um, based on some of the discussions we'd had from my book. And I'd blocked one of the people who was giving me abuse, who then I saw was complaining that they, they couldn't get onto the article that I posted because I blocked them. And I, I blocked them for, for my own mental health because why should I sit there and take someone calling me all sorts because I don't think racism should be in football? Um, and then... And and that's one or two people having a go at me. And then you sort of think about football or what they get on a Saturday evening, and it must be absolute hell for them. You talk about the purity of football, and you can and kind of get an understanding of of what you mean by that. And you talk about the simplicity of it and the beauty of it. Um, Dom, what is it that you love most about football? I mean, I've, I think it's the whole connection with something bigger. That it started off just with. Well, as as I sort of say say in in the book, it started off at Wednesday Aldershot for me in 1989, and I was four years old, and I went with my dad, and I can't remember it, but I'm pretty sure I'd wear all of the time because I'd gone with my dad, and all throughout my football life, I'd gone with my dad, 
And it's just always been that thing that we can share, that something to talk about, something that brings us joy, brings us misery, something that that we can sort of go on and for both our, our lives share that together. And I, I just think that's such a nice thing. And I think that the whole concept of football, that that you've got all, the, all these people running around in the same shirt as you who are trying their best to try and win games and you get to share it with thousands of people around you and you get to watch a match and people are cheerful and the sun's shining and you get a pie and you have a pint and it's just such a nice thing to do or it should be such a nice thing to do. And then obviously you've got the football that sometimes you see such amazing skills, such brilliant passing and such tough defending and and e- even when the football's rubbish, you can still enjoy it because it can just be a bit of a laugh. And and for me, that's what it should be about. And that's kind of what... I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's something that we'll talk about more, but that and feeling the loss of that was something that really inspired me to write this book. When you were talking about that Sam Hutchinson interview, you wrote in it that you'd... It took you a few months to write the interview up afterwards that you found it quite emotionally affecting what was that experience like for you sort of having that opportunity with someone that you sort of idolized? I mean, it was, it was just quite an incredible experience. And and people say, don't meet your heroes. And I'm, I'm in that weird position where I'm 35 now and I'm older than all of the Wednesday players. And and for, for years until I, I don't know, probably still think it sometimes that I kind of think if only I was given a shot, I could probably <laughs> sneak into the first team or at least a squad. And then you sort of realise that these these people that you idolise, that you cheer on, that you stand and wait to get an autograph for, are sort of six, seven. 10, 15 years younger than you. <laughs> and and there's now, you know what I mean, Wednesday first team players who I could arguably be a father to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that in the first instance, just the opportunity to meet the Wednesday players. And when I, when I went to do the interviews, I got the uh, train down and, and they, then stood outside the uh, training ground for... I don't know, half an hour before I was due to meet the uh, Sam and I, I got autographs and photos with loads of players because they're still my heroes and mm. they weren't doing very well, but they were still my heroes. They were still those players who were good enough to do it. And then, and then to go and meet Sam, someone who had been so honest about his mental health. And I think sometimes when you're going through periods of mental ill health and when I've gone through periods of mental ill health, I thought, can can I do it? Can I achieve what I want? Can I have my dreams? Am I worth my dreams? And then you meet someone who is effectively living the dream 
of of so many people, and you hear about the problems that he had and has ongoingly. And at the time, he was frozen out the team by Gary Monk, um, and then then never regained his place. And 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 he said when when we spoke and um, that uh, that he not wear a Wednesday shirt again on the pitch and, and and we've been talking about how much I appreciated him as a player and he said that he was really happy to hear it but he won't play for Wednesday again because Gary Monk won't pick him and you could see such sadness in his eyes and it, it sort of it felt like someone was telling me that someone had died mm. And and you see how much that meant to him that a club that had been at for five, six years, how much it meant to him, how much he was looking into my eyes as a fan and feeling almost like he was somehow letting me down. And it just it felt like we really connected in a way that didn't happen with all the interviewees. But of I mean because some of them I couldn't meet in person because of COVID. Um, but it was just, it was a player that I loved who plays for the club that I love. And it just, it felt really deep and emotional and powerful. And yeah, it just, it, it just really cemented to me that even though I was having such self-doubt about whether I could do the book, that the book needed to be done. How was how did you find the the actual process of of writing the book? Did it did it have a, an impact on you? Did you ever feel like you know you just said there about you know maybe you had a bit of self doubt about it? Did you ever feel like oh no I can't do this I want to pack it in or how did that kind of that work over the period of time that you wrote it? Oh yeah, I mean like from probably the second I started to the second I finished, I thought this isn't going to happen and. Obviously, with COVID and, and everything, that provided a real challenge because my deadline was for the 1st of May. Um, and I, I signed the contract at the sort of beginning of Dece- late November, beginning of December. Um, and so, obviously, arranging the interviews took a certain amount of time and then having to rearrange them all for COVID and... And there are only a few that I could do in person. And even David Cox, who lives sort of just down the road from me, had to do over the phone uh, because all the games that I'd arranged to go and see him at got cancelled. Um, and and so, yeah, there's huge challenges. And there were times where I genuinely thought I should throw throw the towel in because I thought, am I the right person to be doing this? Can I do enough with these people's stories? But then there are times like when I spoke to Nick Cox, who uh, works at Manchester United as their head of academy, that when I spoke to him, I couldn't stop talking about it for days. He was so inspirational, so everything. Like, so I sp- spoke to the for- for- <clears throat> former women's Afghanistan team manager, Kelly Lindsay, and she spoke about her her career as a player and having to... Uh, quit the game because of injury and it was heartbreaking because you see and hear the 
the absolute passion which this woman had for has for football. And she spoke about it so eloquently. And we both ended up in tears because she was talking about how she felt after each injury and how she ended up having lots of operations on her knee and how she told a coach she was retiring. And, and it just absolutely humbled me that someone who is such a powerful force for good in football felt that I was the right person to tell their story. And it, yeah, it was humbling and it's a real honor to, to talk to all of them, to all the people I spoke to throughout the book. One of the issues that, that, that we kind of talk about a lot with regards to mental health is the, the sort of the rhetoric and the language that we use. Um, for example, when we had Johnny Sharples on, we were talking about the phrase committed suicide and obviously how people more and more are trying to make sure that you use the correct language and use, you know, died from suicide or died by suicide rather than committed, which obviously harks back to a time when it was, when it was illegal Football is, is is rife for those sort of masculine cliches, you know, man up, grow up here, a man's game, men against boys. For you then, Dom, and, and it may have been something that, that, that came up throughout the writing the book, when it comes to football, how important do you think that our use of language is when we're trying to change the, the, the conversation around mental health? I mean, I, I think it's one of the most important things because it it just affects everything because a for a start if you're talking about players not every player is a, a man like there's a thriving women's game and in the years to come whether people like it or not there will be non-binary and trans players in the top leagues um in the world um the first trans player played in a world cup uh, qualifier for american samoa so it's already already happening and long may it continue. And so, A, I think there's that, but also what we think of as a man has changed in the sense that football is a working-class game, but the working class are, are dying as the entity that people still think of it as, that my granddad was a steel worker and in Sheffield and there's no steel mills now and so there's a whole generation of working class men who still go to football who couldn't pass on their experience or their livelihood to their children and to the community around them and now you've got people like my dad, who um, working class, works really hard. All my life has worked hard to provide for me. And I went to university and I write poetry and I write books and I work doing comms for healthcare and charities that that I'm not... I'd probably not win any working class Man of the Year awards. Um, and And I think that all of this harks back to a time that has ceased. And, and I think that's where the struggle is, not just with football, but with wider societies, that we keep on looking back for things we've lost. But having language like stuck, 
<clears throat> stuff like Man Up and Grow Pair, Men Against Boys, that no one can really define what they are. They're just vague terms. If someone's if someone says Men Against Boys on a football pitch, does that mean they want the losing team to go and studs first in the knees of the opposition to prove their worth? Or how does a boy become a man? Um, I mean, it's alluded to, but how how does that happen? And I think that it it just language like that limits the possibilities of football of football fans because it says that you've got to be a certain way that football to survive needs to be more inclusive and just divisive language like that and and as well the stuff like man up says don't talk about your problems it says don't listen to other people's problems it says be vague it says don't answer the question how are you properly it says don't make the effort to care for your partner it says that if you're looking after your kids you're doing the babysitting while the missus goes out it it, it doesn't say anything positive and and again that was what i wanted the book to be about how to utilize football to make positive change in the world and how and little things like changing language which is easy although it's the it's breaking the habit of a lifetime but still easy enough to do that can be so positive and make football more inclusive more welcoming for so many people do you think fans time away from the stadium due to covid could potentially change attitudes when they return almost taking it for, for granted previously I mean, I'm not. I'm I'm not sure. I think. I, I sort of think it's like anything that there'll be big parties, big hurrahs when fans go back, and then three weeks later, if if we're not careful, it will drift into what it was, and I think that people will. They talk about wanting to get back into grounds, but most people, I think, probably didn't go anyway because I, my my granddad's a Grimsby season ticket holder, and I think Blundell Park holds about eight thousand people, and I think they get probably three and a half, four thousand a week, and that won't change. I, I think it will for the first few games. I think. When it's safe for people to go back, I think they'll get bigger crowds for the first few matches. And then if we're not careful, it'll drift back to what it has been. But I think that is sort of part of a bigger conversation about football engagement within the community, uh, ticket pricing. And I think fundamentally, and something that will be talked about a lot with this um, coup d'etat that Man and Liverpool appear to be trying to have over English football that people will be talking about football finance a lot more and realising that when you have a team like Arsenal who make redundant their mascot who's on maybe 25 grand a year and on the same day sign someone for 45 million and 200,000 pounds a week that, that that needs to be talked about and I think 
as Tranmere fans, as Wednesday fan, uh, all fans of the lower leagues, we have to really market the game to to make it a positive place to come when we can go back. Because I don't want to go back to the way it was. I don't. I don't want people to take football for granted. I want people to acknowledge the excitement. It, it seems recently with football that most of the conversations we have around it are, are very negative. Uh, but we do also realise the power football has to, to have positive change. You, you look at Marcus Rashford recently. Why do you think football, possibly more than any other sport, has this ability to unify people and, and drive change? Do you think it's purely based on its popularity or more to do with the people's connection to the club and to the resultant community? I mean, I think to sort of half look at the previous question, half at this, I think football is divided into two sections now that you've got Liverpool fans. And as someone who lives away from Sheffield, like I'm not, and, and can't go to many matches, I'm not in any way condoning people who can't, travel or afford to go but a team like Liverpool make most of their money far far away from the city of Liverpool and so I think to an extent the owners yeah they don't understand the people of Liverpool and I think nor do they care really like they want lots of people for their open top bus parade but I don't think they're that fussed if no one from Liverpool gets a match day ticket. If you then look at the heart of the players, like fans versus, uh, sorry, fans for food banks in Liverpool, there is a scheme run by Liverpool and Everton fans. You can see how a city is united to do something positive into the community. And I think almost it seems that the more detached the club itself gets from their place of origin the more fans are uniting to try and do something positive within the community that if you look at when Marcus Rashford um, talks about ending uh, child hunger in the UK it's stark the the difference in people who say get on with the football and those who support the initiative and i think it feels like some footballers some managers are really trying to embrace more than ever that connectivity between clubs and their fans their city their town their village Whereas some owners have eyes on the horizon. And I mean, like, at Wednesday, Gary Monk, for... I mean, as someone who's been a very big critic of Gary Monk, I applaud his efforts in trying to engage fans. And there's been a much more positive atmosphere amongst Wednesday fans over the last few months because of the work he's done. But I think we can't forget where we've come from. With the way football is going then and, and the money that's involved, how it's essentially just big business now, do you think us as fans maybe need to stop expecting positive change? Because 
not positive change in how the game's played or equality or those things, but football taking on outside measures. There's often almost uh, an expectancy. We saw it, didn't we, at the start of lockdown uh, for football to take on responsibility and of the shortfall of other entities. Is that maybe something that we should try and stay clear of and not over-politicise football? No, one, 100% not. Football is political. Football, if you if you go to Blundell Park that um, in Grimsby, well, in Cleethorpes, it's built into a housing estate. The, the people who go and watch the matches, if they sneeze out their open window, they hit the stand. Football is at the very heart of our community and all of our communities. And I think that football clubs should do more because they want to do more. I think at the beginning of lockdown, I felt incredibly sorry for footballers and football, to be honest, that that they were weaponized by this conservative government who were accusing them of, I mean, effectively accusing them of making too much money. But if you've got a player, and, and I'm not defending them, I think getting paid £100,000 a week to do any job is ridiculous and should stop. But if you've got someone who's paid £100,000 a week, they're putting 45, 50 grand straight back in to tax a week. And yes, they're earning more in a week than I would in three, four years. But they're also paying three times, four times more tax than I would in three, four years. And so I think footballers, from that point of view, were scapegoated to distract from so many other issues. But but I think football has to. It has. It doesn't have a formal responsibility any more than a film production company has, that Disney has to look after the areas around cinemas where their films are shown. But I think it should. Like, one doesn't have to be compelled to do good. One can do good for the sake of it. And in in Scotland, where I'm living, there's a... Uh, the team that I coach with called Spartans, they um, provided something like 100,000 lunch meals to children throughout the pandemic and all the coaches and all the staff uh, gave up their time to take those meals around, to deliver them. They gave something like 10,000 meals to the elderly during that time. And they did that all volunteer-led, all out of the good of the heart. And and that's what clubs should do because things can make a difference. And I think it's not just about money. It's about going around the hospitals at Christmas. It's about all that sort of good that can be done because you can't forget what made you. And, yeah, like Sheffield Wednesday started as a sort of local team to keep people together in the off-season of cricket and has grown into a huge football club. But that was all done 
within the community and it's only in relatively recent years that the club has had a fan base beyond the local community and i think that's the case for a lot of clubs and they don't i think a responsibility to make up shortfalls elsewhere is not on their shoulders but certainly campaigning for change doing the types of stuff marcus rashford have done because also, if nothing else, it makes good business sense. If the people of Sheffield are poor, the people of Sheffield can't afford to eat, then Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United will have no one going through the gate. If they've got no one going through the gate, they've got no one to pay the wages, and then we're in a dire state. We slowly, well, sort of touched on the women's game previously, but just to go into a little bit more depth, while it's made great strides over the past decade, um, do, do you think the growth could assist towards attitude change in mental health in this country? I'd, I'd, I'd hope so, because I think that as a whole, and I've, I've not got any particular facts to my fingertips to back this up, but I think as four blokes we could all say that the women in our lives, whether they be partners, sisters, mothers, friends, are all more in touch with their mental health and well-being than we are. And I think that that is something that is most likely reflected within women's football. And I think that it's been a challenge so far because women's football hasn't had the coverage that it deserves. And so the stories about mental health have only been when someone has reached crisis point. They haven't had the opportunity to talk about it in a general interview in a newspaper. And so I think... And, and, and people haven't known who they are, unless you're very into women's football... Until the last few years, people just haven't known the names. So they're, they're not heroes to anyone. They, they haven't been heroes to anyone yet. But now, I'm sure most people in the country could name a handful of lionesses, if nothing else. And all of a sudden, they are heroes. They are role models. And they are talking about these issues more. And I think it, it will be a positive change. But I think it, it will take time because I think so, so something that I've always found a challenge about women's football is that I've never known sort of in the top flights who to follow or take an interest in because I'm I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan and I'm not going to wear it, let's say I decided to follow Arsenal or Man U or City or someone. I'm not going to wear a City shirt. Even if it's got Scott on the back. Because I, I don't want people to think that I'm a Man City fan. Because we have a male normative view of looking at football for now. And so I always wondered whether... Um, I mean, teams like Doncaster Bells, who were sort of forerunners in the games and never associated Doncaster Bells with Doncaster Rovers. Um, and so I always wondered 
whether having different team names would would help. And I think, but I think over time, as teams grow, their fan bases will increase, and those positive role models will make a make a difference. And I think fans of one will start to bleed over into the next, especially with more coverage. And you see just the quality of the game and. You've got sites like Her Football Hub, which is a really amazing resource um, news site for women's football that I follow and I read now. And you learn so much and it feels like you're on a journey that those people 100 years ago would have felt about men's football. At Tramier, we have something called Rover and Out, which is there to uh, in, encourage the LGBTQT community. Um, and again, I think that's another positive step we're now seeing in football to not even just make it about men and women, but to make it about everybody and make it as inclusive as possible. Football for so many years was a sort of male working class pursuit. And it's not anymore. And and I think partly the male working class have done that to themselves to an extent in the sense that People demand signings. They demand big money spent. They demand getting the top players in. And so instead of being able to charge a tenner for a ticket, you now charge 50 quid, 70 quid, 100 quid. And people can't afford that. But I think, as a wider point, football stadiums are half empty. Most football stadiums are half empty or three-quarters empty. And at Hillsborough, we can get 40,000 in, and we probably average between 23 and 26,000. So there's 14,000 seats empty every single week. And to my knowledge, the club has done zero outreach to, um, I think about 18% of Sheffield could identify as being part of the Bain population. Um and I think nationally, about 8% of people are part of the LGBTQIA uh, plus community. And so if you've got 14,000 empty seats and you've got probably 80,000 people who you've made no effort to ever outreach to, that just doesn't make sense. And I think there's... Again, a strange divide that society is going through at the minute in the sense that I I spoke to a footballer called Blair Hamilton in the book and she's a trans footballer uh, from Scotland and she says that she wouldn't feel particularly safe going to watch a football match because people say all sorts of horrible things. And... Yet she's a fanatic. She's played all of her life. She's coached around the world and loves football, but wouldn't necessarily go to a football match. And that's a terrible situation to be in. But equally, I know that a lot of the people, if they met her and had a conversation, would find her enthralling and love her and being trans would not be something that was mentioned or referred to or even acknowledged. There would just be a sense of, I don't care, you're a decent person. And I think as 
Harvey Milk said, slightly paraphrasing, that once people meet gay people, they won't be scared of them. They won't fear them. They will acknowledge that they all know one of them. Um, and I think that's the case of football, that outreach has to happen because it's not, inclusive at the minute that i genuinely if i was a minority i'm not i'm white mostly middle class man um but if i was a member of a minority group i'm not convinced that i would feel safe going to a football match and that to me is such a shame because going to a football match is brilliant and I think that as more and more people feel confident in wider society, identifying as part of the LGBTQIA plus community, we have to reflect that in the football stadiums. And you see groups at a lot of clubs now, as you said, Tranmere have initiatives and many other, other groups do. But there's still that element of stop shoving it down our throats that someone will take a pride flag in and there'll be a bit of a backlash from people a small small minority but but there will be and and it's that thing that it doesn't seem to compute in people's heads that why would someone go to football if they're not allowed to be themselves and it's the same with the Black Lives Matter um, taking the knee, that I fully support that. And I got, got into some almighty rows with Sheffield Wednesday fans on social media because of it, who were very against it, who were being very offensive towards players, towards the club who were supporting it. And I just... I don't know how someone can go to a football match, hear one of their idols be racially abused, and when that idol says, actually, I'm not standing for it anymore, I don't want to be racially abused on the football pitch, they go, oh, I can't see why you're kicking, kicking up a fuss. And it, it just... Football has to become more inclusive, or as a business, it will die because it will stop reflecting society because like, I'm not going to go and stand and take friends, family, loved ones to a football match where they will hear people be abused, whether it be for the color of their skin or their religion, their sexuality, their gender. I'm not going to go and, you know, I mean, take my niece and nephew when they're older to a football match. If they're going to come out, hearing people be abused, it's not worth it. I can go and watch a film, I can take them to a gig, I can take them to a multitude of places where they won't have to watch other people being victimised. And that's what's going to happen. People will, walk, people will start to walk because the generation and type of people who refuse to accept minorities into football grounds 
that they are a, a minority and at some point enough people if it doesn't change enough people will walk that that business won't become sustainable anymore and clubs will fold and things will just be done online and football will be taken away from everyone because of the actions of a few. I was just wondering if you could sort of let our listeners know firstly when your book will be released and where people can buy it from. So it's available to pre-order now. It will be officially launched in the UK and the US on the 8th of December. And if you've got any listeners in Australia, it's coming out there in March of next year um you can buy it from all good bookstores it's um should be yeah available to pre-order you can go in and ask them or it's available on their website so if you just google my name and get your head in the game or it's on the waterstones website but just on a personal note regarding your book how, how have you been feeling about it in terms of are you anxious excited how are you nervous about maybe the reaction? How do you deal with knowing that you're going to have your work in front of people to buy and, and to consume? I mean, I, and, and this sort of leans back into the thing about inclusive, inclusivity, but I have said some things that I believe that I know for a fact some people disagree with. And for example, trans women are women, trans men are men. And I've said that categorically, repeatedly within the book. And there will be some people who falsely identify themselves as feminists who disagree with that. And I think that's a real shame because, again, that's a minority group who are trying to cause hate on other people who are just trying to live their lives. And I think because I've been a part of the, those discussions and, and my point of view is that one shouldn't back away from those discussions because for if I can take abuse from trans-exclusionary ra radical feminists on social media, it gives a trans person a bit of respite. And so I'll never back away from those conversations. I'm not scared of the criticism which will undoubtedly come because mental health gender things like that they things that people have very strong opinions about I've written about refugees in the book and and again people have strong opinions on them but ultimately i'm big enough and daft enough and ultimately the sad fact of the matter is I'm, I'm a white middle class male. Most people will be nice to me and it will probably get a reasonable reception. But I just, I want to help be a part of a conversation that makes the world better for other people. And in much the same way you guys do, that you do this. And I'm sure that you've had criticism, critique and lots of applause, I hope, from, from many people. And I guess... I'm not scared of it with regards to the the book itself. It's, it's felt a bit like a damp squib because obviously I had a whole book tour and everything planned, which is all out the window now. So 
yeah, like publication day will probably be me with the Chinese takeaway and a bottle of wine rather than <laughs> a big launch event, which I'd hoped for. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. And loads of amazing people are doing amazing things. And I feel really honoured to have the opportunity to bend your ears about it in the ears of your listeners. And if one person, I know it's the old cliche, but if one person can feel a bit better about themselves because no one wants to hate no one does and stuff like anti-semitism transphobia islamophobia they're all choices that people make and if people can make the choice not to do them because i've shone a light on the fact that when they are horrible to people it really does hurt then i've done more Good than I ever thought I could in this life. Welcome back to Man Marking. You are still with me, Dan Reed, and uh, the two chaps, Ant and Ryan. So I think what would probably be best for us to do at this point is kind of point you in the direction of where you can find Dom's book and where you can find Dom as well. So, uh, Ant, do you want to tell the listeners where they can find Dom's book, when they can find it, and all of those lovely, lovely details? Yeah, of course. Um, you can find, well, Dom's book comes out uh, the 8th of December, so just in time for Christmas, uh, which is great. And it'll be available in all good bookstores and all bad ones as well. Ha, ha, ha. Lol. <laughs> Lol. Yeah, no, but... Name, uh, um, name a bad bookstore, please, Ant. Uh, name them, shame them. Bad Books Emporium. I don't know. <laughs> Borders, because they don't exist anymore, so... I don't visit bookstores. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> you're a strictly ebook type of fella <laughs> with the modern age. Strict, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Do get him. Do go and find that book because it is. It it really is good. It, it's a superb look at, at, at football and mental health, and it's um it's got a a, a lot of uh, it's got a star star quality cast to it as well. Um, yeah. So. You know, I'm really looking forward to to reading it and 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 getting it as well. So, yeah, and obviously Ryan's going to tell us where you can find Dom. <laughs> yeah, where, where can we find him? Where can we find him, Ryan? Um, so if you use Twitter, um, then he's at Fantastical Dom. Uh, but he does also have a, a website as well, um, which is FantasticalDom.com, which is a great name. Uh, and there's a bit about him on there as well, and work that he's done uh, where you can find some of his other writing and even sort of work with him as well if that's what you're into so yeah that's where you can find him fantastic thank you very much chaps um yeah so dom's book as 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 we said out on the 8th of december it's called get your head in the game um not named after the famous song from which musical ant or high school musical and now it's going to be stuck in my head all day Too right, it should be. It should yeah. always be stuck in your head. Um, but yeah, it'll be out on the eighth of December. Go and find Dom. Go and find his Twitter feed. It's a, it, you know, he's got it's a really interesting and fun Twitter feed as well. And he's a really great guy. So I'm sure if you if you wanted to drop him a message about the book or you know tell him that you've read it and what your thoughts are when you have done, then I'm sure he'd appreciate it and he'll get back to you and what have you. So yeah, fantastic. Thanks for listening, lads. Thanks for being with us today, as per usual. Um, we're obviously man marking and you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads. Uh, we're going to leave you now with Dom's quick fire. And yeah, 
we'll see you next time. Right, Don, your best football memory. Oh, it'd probably be uh, Wednesday beating Hartlepool at Cardiff in the player final. Oh, that was the year yeah. Hartlepool, wasn't it, in the semi-final? Yeah, could have been us. Yeah. Was that the year, who was your manager then, Paul Sturrock, was it? Did you all have Paul Sturrock face masks, or am I making that up? Yeah, we did. Also, what's your worst football memory? Oh, oh, so in something like 1993, I mean, it's not even a particularly tragic one, but in something like 1993, Steve Bruce scored an equaliser in like in Fergie time against Wednesday. Yeah. In like, I think they scored three in the last, you know, like 25 minutes of injury time. And. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a made-up memory, but I was at, I think, the Black Ball Pub in Sheffield with my mum, my dad, my uncle Drabs, my auntie Sue, my sister, and listening to it on the radio, I think, and just being so gutted that it was the, the first time that I felt genuinely cheated. <laughs> and that's all, always, always stuck with me. I know it's not... I mean, we've been relegated enough times, and... I still have a bit of a grudge against Silvino for Ars- Arsenal for scoring the goal, which I've always felt sent us down, even though we were, you know what I mean, bottom of the league and doing badly. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, Tom, what is your biggest but pettiest pet hate? Oh, God. I, I hate people whose music comes out of their headphones. <laughs> yeah, that is petty. I, just, I honestly... For for years when I lived in London, I, I was all like people wouldn't get on buses with me because I was just obsessed. And it just bothers me so much that people need such bad headphones or to have their music so loud. When when I found out you were Sheffield Wednesday fan, I couldn't stop thinking of Ndumbu and Sungu, and I don't know if I've said that right. Do you have any Ndumbu and Sungu memories? No. No? <laughs> no. That's disappointing. He scored I'm... two at Prenton Park once. Sorry? He scored two at Prenton Park once. I mean... Who hasn't? <laughs> it's the thing about Wednesday over the last 20 years. Since, the, since our decline at the end of the 90s, we've had a lot of players, and, and I had the same sort of football perversion of going on and I'll, I'll get into wormholes that last hours of just looking like I'll think of a player and then look up all their teammates and just go and that's how half the facts in my book came about through do you know what I mean these football player wormholes that I fell into um, yeah. but also when it's at your club it does make it particularly difficult that when you've got players who don't make loads of appearances that you know what I mean, may sit in the mind of someone because they scored against you, but they don't necessarily sit in the mind because they scored for you. Dom, would you rather fight a duck the size of a horse or a hundred horses that are the size of ducks? A duck that's the size of a horse. Okay. <laughs> Any reasons? Um, I think... What's your strategy here, Dom? Come on. It's that sense of... 
the the same way one fears a group of teenagers in the park, however unjustified, you don't fear the one, you fear the group. And and I think it's that strategy that I think, I, although I think I'd more easily beat a horse-sized, uh, sorry, a duck-sized horse, I think just the sheer number of them would eventually exhaust me and then they'd overpower me and Imagine the headlines, like how humiliating author killed by the 38 remaining duck-sized horses. <laughs> it's not something you could win either, because even if you beat all 100, it'd be author kills 100 animals. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> you'd use the word slaughter. <laughs> Dom. Was it the high school musical hit Get Your Head in the Game that inspired the title for your book? No. Um, I didn't know about that until um, a good month or so after we'd named it. Um, and then someone sent me that, that video and it almost caused me to change the name of the book. <laughs> I've gone through such... I'd had so many, so many bad ideas for what to call it, and then my partner named it, um, and I thought the title was great, and so we kept it and started. You know, what I mean, looking at covers and stuff, and then someone sent me that that video, um, but by then it was far too far down the line to to change it. Sadly. I think if anybody's first thought goes to High School Musical, it says more about them than about you, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not sure that football fan High School Musical crossover will necessarily be the target audience, but... I think, I think yeah. I'm the one in the Venn diagram there, by the way. <laughs> uh, simple question. Will Sheffield Wednesday stay up this season? Yes. A definitive answer, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think purely because there's three worse teams than us. Yeah, um, it that way, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and I think that people people have gone on about this 12-point dip, sorry, 12-point deduction, and because last year we only stayed up by 10 points. But I think what people forget is that we, we I don't think we won a game, I think we might have won one game from Christmas to the end of the season. And so our form can't be that bad again. So if we stayed up by 10 points last year on that form, I'm convinced we can stay up this year. I mean, if I'm honest, I wouldn't... I should have probably put five on us getting the playoffs. I think the points deduction has really galvanised the squad, the management and the fans. And I think anything's possible. Tom, uh, Jarvis Cocker, Alex Turner, Michael Vaughan, Jermaine Jackson and Gary Cahill are all famous Sheffield Wednesday fans. As you is are, Jamie Vardy. As is Jamie Vardy. So we'll add Jamie Vardy to the list as well. You've got to be handcuffed to one for the day. You've got to marry one. And you've got to be involved in a public Twitter spat with one of them. Go. Um, crikey, I think... I think just for laughs... I would be handcuffed to Alex Turner because I don't yeah. think I, could, I, I don't think I could do more than a day with him. But I think, <laughs> I think 
could be a good laugh. I'd marry Jarvis Cocker because I think Jarvis Cocker is amazing. And again, to Twitter spout with Michael Vaughan because I think ideologically he's quite well. I'm not quite sure whether we would um, enjoy <laughs> dinner together. <laughs> Vardy not even getting in the top three. Gutted. I mean, no, I, I think it's too hyper for me. I think someone like Alex Turner, you'd probably have a bit of a good day. You'd have a nice meal. You'd probably end up in a bit of a dingy pub drinking pints and whiskey. Whereas I think Jamie Vardy would be bouncing off the walls all day. And in all honesty, I don't think I could cope. Dom, I tell me we had um, a bit of a legendary Jamaican centre-half called Ian Goodison. And you also had a winger called Jermaine Johnson, who's part of the yeah, same yeah. Jamaica team. We spoke to a Sheffield Wednesday fan recently. I think he picked him as his favourite ever Sheffield Wednesday fan. Where does he rank for you? Jermaine Johnson? Yeah. Um, he was all right. <laughs> was all right. What a dig. He was so skillful. <laughs> you sound like a 12 year old Ryan <laughs> I was really disappointed that he's just alright he made like 300 appearances no but 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 the thing is when you're brought upon a diet of Chris Waddle, John Sheridan um, John Harks players like that you sort of view things differently and I think the thing about someone like Jermaine Johnson is he was amazing and he was exciting, but you never knew what you were going to get. It was so anxious watching him because he could take on all 11 players twice and then trip over and it go wide. Or he could, you know what I mean, take a goal kick and it goes in the top corner. Like He was just one of those incredibly unpredictable players. Whereas I think... You go back to the early days of when I went with the Waddles and Hearst and stuff. You sort of, it was just that difference in class that that means that it's quite, it's quite difficult to match. It's like the first time you have a pint, like you can never recreate that buzz. Um, and so I think, I was born into Sheffield Wednesday at just about the right time. But unfortunately, that means I've got to live with it for the rest of time. So, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's still very well thought of at Wednesday. He got shot um, about two months ago, and there's quite the outpouring of grief. I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah. He got, he, I think he's still playing in Jamaica. Yeah, uh, I think Savoy Gardens. He's still going yeah. strong. Yeah, and I mean... Not as strong anymore. He's got a big hole in him, but yeah, he was shot in like a. I think he was like a mistaken gangland shooting or something. Um, and yeah, so he ended up in hospital, and it was quite touch and go. And I mean, Wednesday fans are all, you know, what I mean, legions coming out to support him. So I mean, he's very, very popular and well thought of. Just is is no Chris Waddle. I'll be honest, uh, Dom, I was meant to ask you what song um, would you sing in the car alone but not in front of people, and now I feel bad for going on the Jermaine Johnson. <laughs> so I'm just going to ignore that and ask you what song would you sing in the car alone but not in front of people? 
Oh, I'm, I've got I've got no shame. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Um, like, I, I think, like, not to ignore the question, be too philosophical on it, but I think if someone enjoys something, then, you know what I mean, people should embrace that and one should embrace that. Um, I mean, it sort of varies over time. I always liked Megan Trainer all about the bass. Oh, and yeah. Was, and that was something when I go <laughs> running, I'd have that on repeat, and that would inspire me to think, even if I've got a slightly big bum, you know what I mean? People may not be totally against me. Yeah, no treble. Yeah. She, um, that, that reminds me of when we went to, the last time we went to, uh, the last time we went to Wembley, we were singing a Kylie Minogue song on the way back, weren't we? We were. We were. That was just because I like listening to Kylie Minogue, so <laughs> I have to bring it with us. Um, I think I think that's all of our quick fires. Am I missing anything? Um, I've got one here. Go on. Um, if you had to appear in one reality TV show, which one would it be? And you can choose I... any. Oh, any. I, I loathe reality TV with all my heart. But if if you had to choose one, you have to. Um, I'd probably say like the early big, like the earliest Big Brother. Would you go for Celebrity Big Brother and hope that Chris Waddle and Jermaine Johnson are in there? <laughs> no, because again, I, I tragically am ideologically opposed to Chris Waddle. Um, so I mean, I, I don't think I particularly want to spend any time with him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think because Big Brother was based on, um, like scientific experiments and I think the first ones were a bit they didn't know what was going on so they're actually seemed quite fun um, and people didn't play up to the camera so much either that or like Bake Off because oh, Bake Off yeah I, I just get some cakes and I, 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 I like cakes don't be afraid to shoot the outside Jay. Wait a minute. 